Thank you, thank you. Oh, thank you. I did decide I got all dressed up last week for Easter, so I get the week off. So uh, obviously we're doing something different. If that didn't explain it to you and you're a guest with us and you're scratching your head thinking this place has lost its mind, this is only one evidence of that. The reality is we're starting a series about the, the, the question why, and why do churches, why do Christians do certain things? And some of the things we do is just, it's just strange to an outsider. And so we hope in this series what we'll be doing is going back to Scripture and being able to explain why we do some of the things that we actually do. This morning, I'm going to give you fair warning, this morning we have a baptismal setup. That is for a number of people who have already um, signed up and uh, interacted with the pastor's elders and are ready to stand before you this morning and share their testimony of salvation with you, and they want to follow the command of Jesus Christ to be baptized. And we couldn't be more excited about that. We're inviting every single one of you here this morning who has not been baptized to be baptized. And I'm going to explain why. But I don't have any clothes. Well, actually, you do have clothes, or else you wouldn't be here, and that'd be more awkward than what I'm wearing. We got you covered. If this morning the Lord works in your heart and the Holy Spirit continues to tug on your, your, the heartstrings, and you decide this is the moment that I'm going to encourage you, and I will encourage you throughout the message to come forward and be baptized, and we'll talk about some of the details with that. Now, um, I know that seems awkward to come forward. I promise you it's not as awkward as standing here in front of you in the, the pastoral edition of swimwear. Um, and you think that's awkward. My wife made me promise that I would not tell Speedo jokes. Not even one. <laughs> so you should be thankful to my wife. The Lord has used her already mightily. So why is baptism a strange thing? Well, apart from any meaning behind it, if you were to walk into a room and see a hot tub set up, and see people come forward, stand in front of a group of people, and just get plunked underneath and brought up. It would seem like a pretty strange thing, wouldn't it? And so my goal this morning is to explain to you through Scripture what baptism actually is. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. If you don't, then I'm going to encourage you to grab some Bibles from the back of the room. Again, you can use your devices. Uh, go to Version or a number of other apps that are on there and turn to Romans chapter 6 is where we're going to start. Romans chapter 6, we're going to begin. We're not going to spend a ton of time in any particular passage this morning because I just want to make sure that we drive home the point that baptism is a biblical idea and what it actually is, is picturing. So, Romans chapter 6, let me define baptism for you this way. Baptism, and actually, I'll tell you this right now. I told my wife this when it was coming up. Uh, the most awkward part isn't me not wearing shoes or me wearing a swimming suit. The most awkward part is I don't have pockets. I don't know what to do with my hands. Um... Some of you got that, and some of you didn't. <laughs> There'll be church discipline for those of you that did get it. No, I'm just kidding. All right, so what is baptism? Baptism is an outward sign of the beginning of your Christian life. Baptism is an outward sign of the beginning of your Christian life. Baptism, through Scripture we find, is reserved for those who have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation. So baptism is an outward sign of the beginning of the Christian life reserved for those who have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation. What is a profession of faith? I'm glad you asked. 
Profession of faith can be, uh, you, you know it by other words, like being saved, being born again, asking Jesus into your heart, being a, a follower of Jesus. But let me, let me, those are great church words, but again, we want to get down to true meaning here, so let me dig a little deeper. Profession of faith and being saved and being born again is this, it's knowing that you stand before God right now, right now, not some future moment, but right now, you stand before God in full agreement that outside of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have no hope. So a profession of faith is standing in agreement with God about that point right here, right now. Outside of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, I have no hope. And the reason for that is this, because you were separated from God because of your sin. And in and, and, and yourself, you could do nothing to fix that, nothing to remedy that apart from God intervening, but praise God, he did. And God loved you, and he demonstrated that love for you by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die in your place. And Jesus willingly died, was buried, and then three days later rose again and continues to live even now. A profession of faith is knowing that, those facts, that you were a sinner in need of help and God sent his son to die for you who, who lived, who died, who was buried, and who rose again from the dead. <clears throat> it's knowing that, but it's also believing that and accepting his payment for your sins because outside of that, everything is hopeless. So baptism is a, is a picture of the beginning of your Christian life. It's about Jesus. You are, when you go into the baptismal waters, which we'll talk about here in a minute, a little more specific, um, what you're doing is you're identifying with and associating yourself to and picturing the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 6, which is where I had you turn. Now, I'm just going to start reading in verse 3. Paul says this in the book of Romans, chapter 6, starting in verse 3, are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So the sign and the symbolism, the picture that is happening in this baptismal pool in just a few moments, is, is, is a picture of, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and, and it's not difficult to see the picture. Just stop for a moment and think about it. Somebody is standing in the water, and as they are brought back into the water, that is the picture of the death of Jesus Christ and their death in Jesus. They're brought below the water. That is the picture of the burial of Jesus Christ. But praise God, and if all things go well, they don't stay under the water very long. <laughs> and they're brought up again in the newness of life, which is the picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The picture of, of baptism is, is just that. It's as I die, the old is gone, and, and as I am buried, it's, it's, it's covered, and as I'm brought back up, the new has come, and, and someday soon, just as Jesus did, I too will rise. It's a public profession, a visible confession of faith. It's an outward picture of an inner reality. Coming into the baptismal pool and being put below the water and brought back up again saves no one. It doesn't even wash you very well because it's just water, no suds. It's just a picture. It's a picture of something that's already happened in the hearts and the souls and the lives of the people who are coming to stand here before you this morning. 
It's an outward picture of an inner reality. It's like a wedding ring. It's like a wedding ring. So, so just because you wear a wedding ring, it doesn't mean you're married. And just because you choose not to wear a wedding ring doesn't mean you're not married. The ring is simply a picture of a reality that exists outside of itself. So, so the same thing happens with baptism. Baptism is that outward picture of an inner reality. So as we look at Scripture, that's what we define baptism as. And let me ask you the next question. How do we baptize? How do we baptize? At Uniontown Bible Church, we immerse. We don't sprinkle and we don't pour. Sprinkling and pouring are words that are used in the New Testament, but sprinkling and pouring are words that are never used in conjunction with baptism. Okay, so, so we, we immerse. And when you understand the, the original word for baptism, it's really going to surprise you when you hear it. It's baptizo. So they didn't use a lot of creativity in using the English equivalent. Baptizo understood throughout ancient writings and the study of etymology. There's really no discussion about what baptizo means. It always means immersion, to immerse, to dip in, to dip under, to dunk, to sink, to plunge. There's an ancient writing that talks about a ship that had sunk, and the description of it was, it was baptized. So there's not a lot of uh, other understandings in the New Testament as to what baptism is. The passages that speak about baptism in the New Testament are either directly clear that it was by immersion, or it only makes sense if it's by immersion. Let me run through a few of them and put them here in front of you. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, it says, when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately out of the water. The book of Mark says both John the Baptist and Jesus came out of the water after Jesus was baptized. So it doesn't say specifically he walked to the water and John put his hand over his face and dipped it and brought him up, but, but common sense says they were in the river. They weren't standing next to it and John wasn't flicking water at him, Okay. So the understanding of Matthew 3.16, even in the baptism of Jesus, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, uh, necessitates a uh, immersion. John chapter 3, verse 23, it says, John also was baptizing in Anan near Salim because there was plenty of water there. For sprinkling or pouring, you don't need plenty of water. Those of you who have watched me try to drink my water bottle in the history of my time here at Uniontown know that. You need just a little and you get plenty wet. But the picture being immersion is they went down to the river because there was plenty of water there. The next one, Acts chapter 8, verse 38, this is the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip orders the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch go down into the river, into the water, and he baptized them. So if it was sprinkled or poured, there would be no necessity of him actually entering into the water. So how do we baptize the consistent practice of the New Testament? And the most regular practice of the early church was baptism by immersion. That leads us to our next answer, question, slash thing. Who do we baptize? Who do we baptize? So um, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this. Uh, If you'd like to have a a follow-up question, you can email me. You could jot a note on Facebook. I'd be happy to interact in that way. Um, But for time's sake, I'm not going to dive into paedo-baptism completely. I'm going to kind of dabble around the edges of it. I will sprinkle on it, if you will. Um, Sorry. (laughs) That didn't even make sense. Why did you laugh? What's wrong with you people? (laughs) Who do we baptize? As a a church, um, our conviction is that we practice credo-baptism. Credo is the Latin word for believe. So we practice credo-baptism, believer's baptism. We don't practice pedo-baptism. Pedo is Latin for child or infant. 
And so we don't practice paedo-baptism, the baptism of, of infants. We practice credo-baptism, the baptism of believers. Because as we see it, as you run through the, the New Testament um, uh, narrative, what you find is the repeated pattern is repentance, faith, baptism. Repentance, faith, baptism. It's repeated time and time again. Let's go Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Uh, Peter had just finished preaching, and it says this, those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. So what became first before the baptism was an acceptance of the message of the gospel as Peter was presenting it. Acts chapter 8, verse 12, but when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. So again, there's the presentation of the gospel, there is a belief, and then there is baptism. Mark 16, 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. A few things on this. When you think about the words of Jesus, um, he's somewhat clear here. And what he does is he associates belief and baptism together, doesn't he? And here's the reason why. When you go through the New Testament and the study of the early church, an unbaptized follower of Jesus Christ, an unbaptized person who has put their, their faith in Christ and Christ alone, as we spoke about, an unbaptized believer is a unicorn. Doesn't exist. Every time in the New Testament, baptism is associated uh, with them. Actually, I kind of overstated that. It's not every time in the New Testament. Every time in the early church, it was known that that was the, the, the natural pattern that was going to happen. It's interesting. Uh, many people will look at this verse and say, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. See, you, you have to be believe and baptized to find salvation. But all you have to do is finish reading the verse to realize that's not true. Because Jesus says, no, 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 the one who's condemned is the one who doesn't believe. So baptism doesn't bring salvation. It's just the first act of obedience that follows salvation, which we'll talk about here in, in just a moment. So who do we baptize? We baptize those people who have personally put their hope and faith in Jesus Christ and who have given reasonable evidence of doing so. Define reasonable evidence. We hook you up to a lie detector machine. <laughs> I'm just kidding. To be honest, as a pastor, one of my... One of, uh, it's a huge concern of mine when we baptize, especially young people, that they understand what it is that they're doing. Because for someone to get baptized at a younger age, not fully understanding what it is that they're doing, later on in life can look back and be like, but I'm having all these doubts, but I got baptized. And they, they can't close that, that loop. So what is reasonable evidence? There's no science to it. Um, there's no, we, we don't make you crawl up the hill on your knees as an evidence of faith in Jesus Christ. Um, what a re reasonable evidence, uh, as we have defined it, is this. Those people who are being baptized share their story with somebody. They share their story with pastors or with elders. And so this morning, the people who have already signed up to be baptized, they've already done that. They've gone through their story with, with myself and with other pastors, with other elders, and they're going to share their story with you this morning. If you're here this morning and you know and love Jesus Christ and you have made a profession of faith, you have stood confident in the finished work of Jesus Christ, but you haven't been baptized yet, and this morning you desire to be baptized, well, you'll come, and we're not just going to throw you in the tub. You're going to come, and actually you will speak with one of our elders, and, and they'll ask you a few questions just to ensure that there is reasonable evidence of the fact that you have personally put your hope and faith in Jesus Christ. If you come, let me tell you, if you come and you have a conversation with the elder, and the elder's like, hey, listen, you know what? Let's... 
Let, let's talk about it this week. That's okay. I applaud your enthusiasm to be baptized, to make a profession of faith that in front of all of these people that it's about Jesus. So, so I will still encourage you to, to come forward and, and have that conversation. Here, here's, here, when it comes to the who do we baptize thing, if, if baptism is the picture of the beginning of the Christian life, common sense follows that baptism needs to be reserved for those who have begun the Christian life. And so that's who we will baptize. Now, that doesn't mean the person is perfect or fully mature in their faith. Um, one of the greatest excuses for people not being baptized is, I just don't think I'm ready yet. Um, it's almost like you feel like you need to work up to baptism. You need to live a little better, understand the mysteries of Scripture a little more complete, have more consistent devotional time, evangelize more effectively, all those things. Like You need to have all these ducks in a row, and then you're going to get baptized. And what I would say is, baptism isn't something you work up to. Baptism is the starting point. Baptism is the first act of obedience after you've come to faith in Jesus Christ. So, so you don't need to have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. And I've been doing this as a job for 20 years now. Nobody's going to have all the answers. What you need to have is a willing spirit to obey when Jesus calls you. And so it's not working up to it. It's actually the, the starting point. And so that gets me to my, my last point, which actually is a significant one. Why do we baptize? We baptize first. Why don't you take your Bibles? Go to Matthew chapter 3. I am about to say the scariest thing from the pulpit, and it's this. I think I have enough time to chase a rabbit. <laughs> Mark the tape right there. So when I'm flying through my last page of notes, you know something went horribly wrong. Why do we baptize? Matthew chapter 3 tells us the first reason we get baptized, and that reason is this. Jesus is the one who sets the example for us. See, in Matthew chapter 3, you have the story of this fellow named John the Baptist, and he's, at, uh, he's baptizing people. It tells us in chapter 3, verse one, 2, what his message is. It's a very smooth, calm, seeker-sensitive message when he says, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. So he doesn't care about his audience. He's just saying, this is the truth. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And he says, there's one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, and it says this, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. This fellow named John, we're told in verse 4, had camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist. I was tempted, but I chose not to go that way. His food was locusts and wild honey, so that means I should stop making fun of kale. People from Jerusalem, all Judea, all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Then he looked up and he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. And this is what John the Baptist said. Nice, warm, fuzzy greeting. You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Tell you what, produce fruit consistent with repentance. Don't presume to save yourselves, but wait, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What John the Baptist does in this moment is he says, you Pharisees and Sadducees, you need to repent. You religious hierarchy, 
You, you famous theological people who stand above all others and say, this is truth. I understand the scripture like nobody else. Let me expound it to you. Here are the rules. Here are the laws. Here are the routines. You religious people need to fall on your face and repent of your religiosity. And you can't depend on your heritage either. Because it doesn't matter who your daddy was. No, your, your children of Abraham, that's great. Um, that's not going to cut it. Just because your, your daddy was Abraham does not mean that you're going to stand before God and be found clean, be found righteous. Continues verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, which is key. We're going to talk about that in a second. But the one who's coming after me is more powerful than I am. I'm not even worthy to remove his sandals. Now, I may baptize with repentance, but he himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan River to be baptized by him, but John tried to stop him, which is never a good idea. When Jesus tries to do something, you don't try to stop him. He says, no, 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 Jesus, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you're coming to me? And Jesus answered him, no, John, (laughs) You can almost hear Jesus like, allow it for now. Because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. And when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased So why do we baptize? We baptize because Jesus set the example for us. But why did Jesus follow the baptism of John the Baptist, a baptism of repentance? What what was that about? Jesus didn't have anything to repent from, right? Well, it's interesting what John is, or or, I'm sorry, what Matthew was doing in the first few chapters of his book. And let me kind of, this is really a short synopsis, but I think it'll give you a little bit of encouragement. I hope it does anyway. So Matthew 1 and 2, you have Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, Jesus being born, and then Mary, Joseph, and Jesus fleeing to Egypt to escape a genocide, right? And after a period of time, about two years, it's safe for them to come back. And so God appears to Joseph in a dream and tells him to come out of Egypt, just like Israel did, leaving Egypt on that great exodus. Um, We'll get to Matthew 3 in a second. Matthew 4, the next chapter, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days to wander, just like Israel wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And while there, Jesus endures the same types of, of temptations that Israel endured. However, there's a difference. Jesus succeeded in those temptations. Another little side note, what you'll notice is when Jesus quotes Scripture to Satan during the time of temptation, all three quotations are from the period of wandering that Israel did. Jesus did something for Israel that Israel wasn't able to do for themselves. You get to Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the great sermon on the mount. And what happens is Jesus goes up to the mountain to give the law, just like Israel went to the mountain to receive God's law, only this time it's different. Jesus will fulfill the law perfectly. So you see this substitution picture happening throughout the first chapters of Matthew where Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of everything that Israel needed. Now you get to Matthew chapter 3. Does Jesus need to repent? Does Jesus need righteousness from this baptism? Nope. Who does? The rest of us. So just like the rest of the theme of substitution throughout Matthew 1, 2, 
four, five, six, seven, Jesus takes their place and is baptized in their stead. What's interesting is then at the end of his baptism, he gets to hear those awesome words. You are my beloved son, and I am pleased. Can I, can I throw something at you? Because you traded places with Jesus, because he was baptized by a baptism he didn't need, but that he did in your place, you too can hear those awesome words from God. You are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. Man, we don't deserve that. And, and I know for many of us, we look at our lives and we think, man, I got failure. And that, that, that whisper of failure kind of keeps creeping into your soul. And that, that whisper is, man, you're such a failure. You're no good. God says, no, there's a declaration that's been spoken about you that declares a far greater reality than your sin or your failure. It's that Christ has taken your place. That Jesus has completed righteousness for you. And now you're a new creation in him. He's washed away all your guilt. And you're his beloved child. And because of Jesus, God is pleased with you. Something we definitely don't deserve. So we, 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 we get baptized because Jesus sets the example. We get baptized because in Matthew 28, Jesus clearly commands it. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we baptize because Jesus was our example, because Jesus clearly commanded it, and because the early church followed the example of Jesus and the command of Jesus. Acts chapter 2, verse 38 says, Peter replied, repent, be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized. So for them, it was a matter of obedience. For us, it's a matter of obedience. And your obedience brings God's, God joy. Your obedience allows us to celebrate along with you your willingness to follow after Jesus' example and command. So some of the... Um, objections to baptism. This is the biggest one, without question, in our church. Okay, so, so hear me, and please hear me all the way through. So one of the main objections in our church is this. I was baptized as a baby. I was baptized as a baby. For, for many of you, uh, you were. You were baptized as a, as a small child, and it was a special moment. It was a part of your family tradition. So please understand this. I am not saying you did something wrong. And I'm not saying, oh, sorry, your baptism doesn't count. That's not what I'm saying. It's a beautiful and a meaningful tradition. But, but, but as you study Scripture, baptism is supposed to be an evidence of your decision. And, and, and in reality, a baby baptism is an evidence of mom and dad's decision. So, so hear this. That I'm not talking about uh, some of the, the traditions in, in uh, Catholicism that talk about um, baptism of a baby bringing salvation. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? I'm talking about a different tradition, a tradition that talks about baptizing your children as a way of dedicating them, baptizing your children, bringing them into the covenant. Let me, let me talk about that just for a moment. When your mom and dad decided to do that for you, their hope for you in that moment was that you would one day choose Jesus for yourself. It, it was actually more of a dedication and, a, and a, a visible prayer than it was anything else. So if you were baptized as a baby, 
should you get baptized again? I will tell you this right now. I have waffled all over the map on that in 20 years. Um, I would say this. This I haven't waffled on. If you're sitting there and you're wrestling in your soul with that, like, I wonder if I should. You should. That's the Spirit of God working in your heart. It's called conviction. Okay, so if there's that wrestling in your point, yes, you should. I will always say that. But, but, but the more I study baptism, the more I grasp the meaning and the power of the picture, the importance of baptism, the more inclined I would be to say to anybody that asked me, the more inclined I'd be to say, yeah, I think you should as an indication of your own faith. Thank God for your parents' faith. But celebrate yours. And, and please, one of the problems is like, well, I, I don't want to reject my old baptism or my parents' tradition. Please hear this. Getting baptized of your own choosing is not a rejection of what your parents dreamt for you. It's actually a fulfillment of what they intended for you. So let me summarize this just to make sure that you get it. Baptism, identifying with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a public picture of breaking away from the priorities and rule of this world and instead clinging to Jesus and Jesus alone. It's a declaration to a dying world that there is hope for life because this dying world needs to know true hope. But can I do all those things? Can I identify with his death, burial, resurrection? Can I um, 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 break from the priorities and the rule of this world? Can I give the world around me hope like they don't have up to this point? Can I do that without baptism? Um, Jesus set the example. The early church followed that example. And Jesus commanded it. So I would say, yes, you can certainly do other things besides baptism to picture your identification with Jesus Christ and Christ alone in addition to baptism. I don't think you can skip over baptism, biblically speaking. So this morning, the question is this. Most importantly, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you made a profession of faith? Have you gotten saved? Have you been born again? Have you asked Jesus into your heart? Have you made Jesus your forever friend? However you want to say it. Have you gotten to a place where you celebrate the fact that your dependence on Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and in that alone, him alone, Jesus alone, is where your hope exists, and in nothing else? Have you done that? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you been baptized since becoming a follower of Jesus Christ? This morning, I'm going to encourage you. If you're sitting there and you're like, I haven't and I need to, let's do it. I'm standing here showing you my chicken legs. I know you might be a little embarrassed. I want to join you in that. If you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you haven't followed him in baptism, this is the morning to do it. And let me tell you something. If you haven't been here during one of our baptism services, it's goosebumpy. Even though the water is like 4,000 degrees, it's still goosebumpy because the local church of Jesus Christ here at Uniontown Bible Church, one of the greatest things about you and the things I appreciate about you the most is that you celebrate well when somebody decides Jesus first. And so this morning, that's what we want to do with you. And so in a moment, I'm going to pray. And as I pray, you just leave your seat. You head over here towards the front of the kitchen. Mark will be there. He'll funnel you to a couple guys. And, and they'll just ask you a few questions. We've got sweatsuits. Don't worry. I haven't seen them. I'm sure they're as fashionable as this, but that's okay. 
We would love to have you join us this morning in following Jesus in baptism. Either way, we're going to celebrate what Jesus has done in the lives of other believers, aren't we? So we look forward to doing that with you. So if you haven't, would you come? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that we can know and love Jesus Christ. Thank you for this beautiful picture before us of baptism. God, I pray that you would be with those who are already prepared to be baptized. Father, that you would encourage them this morning, that you would fill their hearts full as they understand and stand before brothers and sisters in Christ and they they come to this place where they identify publicly with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you use this moment to encourage their walk in Christ? Father, we know this water doesn't save anybody, but it is a powerful picture of how you have saved us. So today I pray that the men and women who are sitting in this room who are even wrestling with that decision right now, that God, they would make it to come forward and follow you in this act of obedience. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for what you've done. It's in Jesus' good name I pray.